Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's mormondiscussionpodcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $1.50 a month or $12 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real. I'm using a little different mic today. I'm sitting here at work at 7.56 in the morning and uh, and just giving a different mic a try. Um, also, it is pouring rain outside. This is the hardest and longest I've seen it rain in St. George in the two years I've been here. So you're probably hearing a little bit of a background staticky noise. That's because it is pouring buckets. Uh, I'm grateful for the chance to be in front of the microphone with you today. Grateful for the chance to talk today to you. Uh, today, what I wanted to talk about is the Temple Worthiness interview. In the way that I go into that interview and frame those questions in my mind, and how I answer those questions and what I'm thinking about in the paradigm that I'm coming into that room with, into that interview with a member of the bishopric or stake presidency. And the reason I want to touch on this topic, it's it's something I've really wanted to do for a long time. The reason we're really getting into it now is just recently, a, a week or two ago, I was in Henderson, Nevada. And I was there with a bunch of progressive Mormons. Um, and And we had a workshop, and then that night we had a panel discussion where... Uh, a couple of us who are doing things out there within social media and in Mormonism in kind of a public level uh, did some Q&A with a crowd. And the crowd was maybe 60 to 80 people. And they were throwing out really tough questions. And, and there's a lot of hurt and a lot of pain. And at one point, it was getting cold. And, and we mentioned, like, hey, it's getting cold. You want to wrap this up? And the one guy stood up and said, no, let's keep going. We want answers. And you could just feel like the tension of these folks wanting to stay in the church, wanting to get answers to the really messy questions. Um, for some of these people, they had left, but they just couldn't completely let go without without having exhausted uh, every every chance to better understand why this all fell apart. And and one person raised their hand and said, "Bill, how how do you handle like how do you?" deconstruct and reconstruct Mormonism like the temple questions for instance like it's really tough and almost impossible for me to get through that interview how do you do that and and so I shared a few thoughts and I'll share some of that today with you here but I, I want to make kind of a caveat to this episode which is I, I totally validate and understand that you might have like some level of leader roulette right you might get a really bad bishop a bishop who any any sense of doubt or question is going to make him extremely uncomfortable, and he might even see that as bad or wrong. And, and and if that's the case, you run the risk that even if you frame the answers to these questions the way I do, like like I'm not saying like if you do this, you'll get your temple interview, because it may not work. You may run into a leader who who says like if you're anything below this standard of faith. I'm not going to give you a temple recommend. And I know people who run into that. And so I'm just, I'm just want to honor the fact that this isn't a foolproof way to get through a temple interview. But what I found sitting with these, these people in this, this Q and A panel discussion 
was that some of these things they hadn't even thought of in terms of how to nuance this. And, and so while I recognize that this may not be helpful to some of you, I also simply want to say I think it will be helpful to others. And so I hope that we can just grant that this is, this is beneficial to somebody. And if it's beneficial to somebody, then it's worth it. I, I also want to say too that, that I, that I grant that not everyone can go into these, these interviews and take the stance that I'm taking. That in other words, I would much rather people go into the interview with integrity than going in trying to fit a mold. And I know Claudia Bushman on a podcast in the past, when they talked about question seven, she said, like, just tell these guys what they want to hear. And, and to some extent, I'm with that in terms of, like, use the right words. Use the right phraseology that makes these folks as comfortable as possible, but also completely allows you to maintain your integrity and to be authentic. And, and integrity and authenticity in Mormonism for a progressive Mormon is one of those paradoxes. And it's a tension and it's going to butt heads. But but maybe as you go through this this episode, just to think about that and to allow that kind of wrestle to take place in your mind a little bit, because I think there is some give and take here. I also want to start at the end. I want to start with the last question and work my way up. And And I realize, too, that as I went through these, I understand that some of these questions are more difficult for other people than they are for me. And again, I grant that and I validate that. I, I just wanted to say, like, I honor where everybody's at in their journey. And I totally get if you're just not where I am and I'm not where you're at, that's okay. But let's let's kind of begin and go through these. Number 15, do you consider yourself worthy to enter the Lord's house and to participate in temple ordinances? Now, again, none of us are perfect, right? We all fall short of the glory of God. None of us are going into that interview being a perfect Mormon, checking all the boxes. So the question can't be asking that because if it was, nobody could go. The other thing is that this question is asking you to evaluate yourself, Right? It's not what my bishop thinks about me. It's not what my stake president thinks about me. It's not what the lady down the hall or the guy in elders quorum thinks about me. It's what do I think about myself, right? And so it's a, it's a reflection question or a reflective question on the inwards, the inwardness of yourself, right? And, and the other thing is just the word worthy. Like every one of us is a child of the living God. And as a son or a daughter of the living God, to some extent, I am just worthy just because. Like, in spite of my behavior and in my life, I am worthy because I am a child of the living God. Like, how can, my worth cannot be taken from me. I am part divine. I am a son or daughter of a divine being. That by itself gives me worthiness. And so do I consider myself worthy? Heck yeah, I consider myself worthy. Worthy of God's love, worthy of God's grace, worthy of God's mercy. And so again, it's it's a self-evaluation. The word worthy can have a much more nuanced context. And and I'm not, again, I'm not asking anybody to go in and say, man, I just killed somebody last week. And But I still, you know, Brother Real said I can, uh, you know, claim to be worthy and just go into the Lord's house and not tell anybody. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying, though, is that if you soften the question just a little bit, and allow yourself to feel your worthiness. Allow yourself to feel the love that God is giving you. Then, then what some guy in some room thinks about you or thinks about your ability 
it just really doesn't mean anything in the scheme of things. And and so if you can frame the question that way, I think it gives you a much looser perspective to see just how worthy you are. Number 14, have there been any sins or misdeeds in your life that should have been resolved with priesthood authorities but have not been? Now, when I used to be asked this question, what I used to think about in my head was, what have I done wrong that I have not ever told anyone? And if you go in with that perspective, it becomes a challenge because all of us have done wrongs and all of us have wrongs that we've done that we haven't confessed to somebody. Now, we're taught in Mormonism that we can confess and repent between us and the Savior, that there are a lot of sins that we need not take to anybody else. There are a lot of mistakes we make that we simply have to have a conversation with the divine and work that out between us and them, right? And this question, again, if we just kind of look at it and reframe it, it's not asking, have there been any sins or misdeeds in your life that should have been resolved? It's asking if there have been any sins or misdeeds in your life that should have been resolved with priesthood authorities, but have not been. And so what I would suggest is that you, in your mind, take the position of, like, what sins and misdeeds do I have in my life that really do need to be handled between me and another human being who is a representative of God in my church, right? And and there seems to be an awareness in the handbook of these. When you look at, like, apostasy in the church... Some of the things are kind of odd, and, and I think one of them, if I remember right, from years ago when I served as a bishop, is embezzlement, right? The, the stealing money from the church, like this embezzlement of church finances, is a, is a serious offense, right? If, if I go and rob a bank, that sin is seen as less than than if I rob the church, right? And, and some of our sins are personal sins. They're sins that just affect us, at, at least directly. And sins that seem to need some greater level of repentance are ones that affect the agency of others. So one, if I, if I damage the church in some way, right? Or if I hurt the agency of another, murder, abuse, uh, physical, sexual, those types of things um, are sins that have affected another person directly or have affected the church directly. I would simply like start to like parse these out and put these into various categories in your head and decide between you and Heavenly Father which sins need to be resolved with a priesthood authority, right? The other thing with this question is God himself is a priesthood authority, right? And, and so as you look through this question, like you realize like the question's asking me not if I have any sins and misdeeds in my life that need resolved, but do I have any that need resolved with a priesthood authority? And of those, which of those need to be resolved with this guy sitting across the table from me? And, and again, I'm not asking people to dodge the bishop or the stake president. I'm not asking people to hide their sins. Rather, I'm just asking you to make a conscious effort of, of what the sins are, you think, that need to be handled with this guy sitting across the table with you. And, and I know people are going to listen to this podcast and say, Bill is, Bill is inviting me to withhold things from my leader. I'm not. At least not to the extent that I think the church would be concerned. And I, and I think the idea of withholding information, that, that goes both directions all the time, right? And so, again, it, it's just a matter of changing the question to not be asking if you have any sins or misdeeds in your life. And if you do, let's talk about those right now if they haven't been resolved before. But rather, are there any sins or misdeeds in your life 
that the only way to take care of them is if you and I have a conversation. Number 13. It's a two-parter. The first part is, do you keep the covenants that you made in the temple? Now, there's lots of covenants in the temple. There's covenants not to talk about certain things. There's covenants to do certain things. Um, I, I don't want to get into this too heavy, but I do realize this is one of the messier questions because a lot of progressive Mormons feel like they went into the temple blindly, right? That there's a part in the temple where you're asked if you want to, if you're not ready to make these obligations, you can step away. The trouble is you don't know what obligations you're going to make and your parents and your grandparents are sitting right next to you. And so the pressure to not walk away is so, so great that to do so would take like the the greatest amount of awareness and courage that that one would you know possibly have at that age and so as one goes into the temple and makes these covenants and promises i think it can be safely said that the first time through you have no idea what you're even covenanting and promising there's no heads up there's no awareness there's no instructing you that, hey, just so you know, you want to think about this, before you go to the temple tomorrow, you're going to promise to do these things. And I think you should know that ahead of time so that you can think about it in your mind and be ready to either make those obligations or not. The other challenge, too, is that in the temple, sometimes we're promising to do things for the church, we're promising to do things for God, we're promising to do things for the kingdom. And when someone begins to lose some trust in the church, it's it's really hard to look at those promises with with love and charity and sincerity when when that institution has asked you to promise something while you had full faith in it as what it claims to be only to find out later that it withheld things from you and had you known the full story that you would not have had as much trust in the institution and would have been much more hesitant to promise it something and so I, I understand that whole mess. And and I simply want to say, like, as I deal with this question in my mind, I've I've just reconciled in my head, like, what kingdom means, what church means. And so church for me, for instance, DNC 10, before the institutional church is even organized, DNC 10 is the voice of Christ speaking, and he says, Whoso repenteth and cometh unto me is of my church. And so the church is anybody in the world, right? Because it's before the church is organized, so there's no formal church, there's no baptism, there's no church records, there's no um, institution that says, hey, we are the church of Jesus Christ. Rather, Christ seems to be saying that anyone on the earth who is repenting and moving towards the divine is of his church. And so for me, that's the definition I use when I think of this question. And I apply the same thought to the kingdom, right? I mean, Orson F. Whitney said, this church is just, this institutional church is just too small to carry out the plan of salvation, that non-members are among its auxiliaries. And if we begin to see like this giant orchestra in in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints as maybe just the drums, setting the beat, you know, having important things to do like providing essential saving ordinances and and being guardians of those, but that the rest of the world has a part to play and that many people throughout history, including in the very here and now who are not members of God's institutional church, are called and authorized to build his kingdom and to carry out his work, 
then kingdom can take on a much bigger uh, meaning, a much bigger interpretation. And so when you see church and kingdom that way, and you allow Christ to be the Christ of everyone, then this question isn't so harsh and abrasive once you've moved through parts of your faith journey that have caused you to lose trust in the institution. The second part of it is, do you wear the garment both night and day as instructed in the endowment and in accordance with the covenant you made in the temple? And I simply want to say here, again, I understand the tension. Some of you have taken off your garment completely. Some of you wear it only occasionally. And and I simply want to say that like I like the garment. I'm lucky in that I feel really comfortable in it. And that for me, it is just a really easy covenant to keep in terms of just wearing it all the time. But I say that again with a caveat, which is that none of us wear it all the time. All of us take off our garment for various activities, intimacy with our spouse, taking a shower, going swimming, going to the gym, playing volleyball at the church, playing basketball at the rec league. Each of us are making choices in our life of things we wear it for and don't wear it for. And so none of us walk into this question being asked, do you wear the garment 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year? Rather, you're being asked, do you wear the garment in a way that Heavenly Father is pleased and feels you are keeping a covenant with Him? And after you get done with the interview, a church leader generally reads this piece of paper, and this piece of paper says something like, uh, wearing the garment is an outward expression of an inner commitment to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the Savior is really looking at your inner commitment to follow Him. And knowing that none of us wear the garment 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year, then one has to kind of weigh between them and God what is what is the requirement. And even the letter seems to kind of be putting the the decision back into the hands of the member. It's almost like the letter is saying to the church leader, like, you don't get to decide how often someone should wear the garment. Yes, they've covenanted to wear it night and day, but none of us are doing that. All of us are taking it off. The question is, what level of keeping it on and what level of taking it off is acceptable to God? And since the outward wearing of the garment is an, is an outward expression of an inner commitment to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, then, then that decision lies between the person being interviewed and God. And if you can walk into that interview saying, look, I've had a conversation with God. I've explained to him that where I am in my lack of trust in the institution and, and I am just, I, for me, the garment is toxic. For me, the garment is hurtful and painful and reminds me of the worst things of Mormonism. Again, I'm not your judge and I don't have stewardship for you, but I simply would say like, if you can go to God and have a conversation and, and, and there's a, there's a dialogue between the two of you that there is some part of peace imparted to you, that there is some part of comfort imparted to you and some level of understanding given to you, then I would simply say, walk into the temple interview and say, look, in your head, say, look, like I've, I've talked this out with God and be comfortable in your own skin with whatever decision you and God have come to that is less than perfect obedience of wearing it 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. But again, don't use that as a, as an, as a cop out. Like if, if you and God aren't extremely comfortable where you're at, 
like there's an invitation here to have a conversation with a church leader. And I, and I want to too, on the other side of the spectrum, I want to say like to the church leader, like the church says you have the spirit of discernment and the spirit of discernment doesn't give you the right to measure everyone's definition of these questions by your definition of these questions. Rather, the spirit of discernment gives you the right to know in your heart if this person is right with God in the answer they're giving. And so their definition, interpretation, understanding might be completely different than yours. But God may not require the same level or rigidity of obedience that he's requiring of you. And I also want to validate to the church leader, like, if somebody's really not okay with God, not that they're not okay with you, and not that they're 100% on board with the church, but rather that they're not okay with God, then then by all means, you absolutely have a right to withhold a temple recommend. And I simply want to, like, validate that to you. Like, you have a right to hold that back. If someone comes into an interview and and they're saying, like, I've done this, but it's okay because I've talked to God and he's okay with it. And and deeply, your deeply spiritual sense says, no, this isn't all right. Then by all means, use that spirit of discernment. And as a judge in Israel, if you feel it appropriate to withhold a temple recommend, I, I validate that you have that right to do so. That is your calling. And so there is this tension. Again, here's another paradox. Is you have two human beings who are flawed and and at times severely flawed, trying to discern what God thinks about each other and specifically the person being interviewed. And these two people having to, in this tension of not understanding God perfectly on either side, come to some kind of understanding of where God stands. And I think that tension is good. And there is in some ways like this give and take. And and I wish both sides of that table understood that tension every time a temple interview took place. And so I don't want to be seen by the church as saying, yeah, you know, as the member, you can define these questions however you want. Walk in, tell that leader whatever you want, and just walk into the house of the Lord. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying, though, is that these questions are vague. And they're vague intentionally to give people room to have different understandings without there being this rigid judgment of one person who sees a rigidity in the gospel and withholds another from participating because they're not in that same box. Number 12, do you have financial or other obligations to a former spouse or children? If yes, are you current in meeting those obligations? For me, this question's simple. Like, do you, are you behind in like child support payments? Are, are you taking care of court-ordered um, request or commands, in a sense, to pay penalties or fees that you owe because of because of whatever those legalities are. And, and I would say if you have those, like talk to the leader. Nowhere in this question does it say, if you have these, you absolutely can't have a temple recommend. I don't know if the handbook says that. I'm not a bishop anymore. I don't have access to the handbook. Most of us don't. So I don't know if it's in there. But I would simply say, like, if you're not keeping this this particular obligation, then then don't hide it. Like, talk to your church leader. Let it come to the surface and talk about it. And maybe there are really good reasons for not being able to do that. And maybe there isn't. And again, I validate this church leader's stewardship and right to to be a mediator um, on this conversation. Number 11, do you keep the word of wisdom? 
for me, the word of wisdom is another one of these messy questions because I really struggle with the church when God speaks and says ABC and then church leader speaks and says, let's go even further XYZ as well. Or let's take out the A and the C and let's add in the X and the Z. And and so I struggle in the church when God speaks. I, I have very little issue with when God is speaking in the first person in the church. Very little issue. The one exception might be section 132. But for everything else that's going on, when God is speaking directly, I, I have very little issue with what he's saying. It's when church leaders come in and say, yeah, well, I think this means this and this is what we're all going to do now. And that's when I think the church often gets it wrong and makes mistakes that hurts it for decades and decades to come. Whether we're talking about the clothing one has to wear in church, the number of earrings one has to have in their ear, um, certain drinks that one can or cannot drink, when one talks about whether tithing should be paid a certain way, what day of the year Jesus was born on, I mean, we're often overreaching. What I would prefer to do is go back to section 89. When I'm asked if I keep the word of wisdom, I'm being asked, do I keep God's commandment? God's commandment, the only place I can find God speaking in the first person about how I'm to take care of my body is section 89. And section 89 um, is is somewhat vague. Section 89 is given as a word of wisdom. Now again, the temple interview, again, I want to validate the other side of this coin. The temple interview is asking if you keep that. So even if you say section 89 is just a word of wisdom, it's just good advice, it's not a, it's not a deep line in the sand, I want to validate that the temple recommend interview is making it a deep line in the sand. And whether I agree or disagree, the church has a right to do that. So when I go into this question, I'm looking at section 89 and I'm saying, what does section 89 say? What is God telling me through my faith tradition about how to take care of my body? And am I striving to do that? And am I repenting when I fall short? And and again, I think section 89 has a, a lot more nuance to it and fluidity. Whereas kind of the way leaders define section 89 today is much more rigid. So when you walk into the interview and you answer question 11, like maybe look at section 89 first before you go and say, am I doing this? And again, I think all of us are not. All of us are not keeping section 89. And so again, perfect obedience can't be what the question is asking because nobody is perfectly obedient to section 89. So again, there's room. Number 10, are you a full tithe payer? One of my favorite questions. Because are you a full tithe payer on gross, net, surplus? What does it mean to donate money to the kingdom? And and I simply would throw out there, like, there is some nuance to this question. And there's lots of conversations out there if you want to understand the law of tithing better, in the history of tithing better. And so for me, I have no problem with full integrity walking in to, to the interview and answering number 10 that I am a full tithe payer even though I do not pay 10% of my gross income and and that's another point we should make like the whole point of this this interview that you have with this person on the other side of the table who has uh, religious institutional stewardship for you is that I want you to be authentic I want you to answer these questions with integrity but I also want you to see the room in this interview for you to be different in terms of how you believe these things than the guy across the table and still feel confident sitting in that interview. Number nine, are you honest in your dealings with your fellow men? 
So I've talked about this before in the podcast. Honesty is a tricky word. I think all of us have lied. I think all of us have lied without repenting. And I think all of us have lied at times in ways that God would actually approve of. I don't think lying is always wrong. And I've used examples before. If if you lived in Nazi Germany and you hide some Jews in your house and the and the Nazis come to the door and ask if there's any Jews there, and you say, no, there's not, sir. You've lied. But I think in no way your integrity has been hurt, nor does God have any ill feelings of what you just did. In fact, if anything, I think he honors you and praises you and is grateful for the courage that you had. I think he would expect us to lie when it means to deeply protect another from harm. Now, the trouble comes in when we lie for personal gain or to protect ourselves or to cover our butts. When we lie to do that, I think it is wrong. And so even just the word lying has to be parsed out on what is good lying and what is bad lying. If someone breaks into my house and I hide my kids underneath my bed and they say, where are your children at? We're going to take them. And I say, they're not here tonight. They spent the night at a friend's house. Like, is that lying bad? I can't believe it is. I have to believe God would honor that and see that as, as the only choice and the right thing to do. And so when someone says, are you honest in your dealings with your fellow men? Like, we have to like parse this question a little bit. And, and the question it's asking is, are you, are you honest to those around you in a way that, that doesn't, you know, you're not causing them harm, you're not hurting them, you're, you're not trying to cover your own butt or, or protect yourself? Are you lying in a way as to get gain or to take away from another? And I would say if you are doing those things, then have that conversation. Like again, I want you to be honest in this interview. And all of us at times have things to repent of, things that need to change. And so here's a perfect opportunity to go in and to, to do that, to have that conversation and, and to repent. Number eight, do you strive to keep the covenants you have made to attend your sacrament and priesthood meetings and to keep your life in harmony with the laws and commandments of the gospel? I find it unique that we're asked as brethren if we attend our priesthood meetings, but our sisters are not asked anything in addition to sacrament meeting. And again, do we strive to keep the covenants we've made to attend our meetings? And I don't remember when I made this covenant. I know I don't, I don't think I made this covenant in the temple. And so I must have made this covenant at baptism, but I don't remember promising this covenant. And so I'm curious if the church would be open to telling me when I expressly made this covenant. But regardless, the, the question again is between me and God. And so for some of us, you know, maybe we attend every other week. Maybe we go once a month. Maybe we show up a few times a year. I would simply say this question is between you and God. On the other hand, though, we need to be honest. If we're going to church just a couple of times a year, is it really appropriate for the church leader on the other side of the table to give us a temple recommend? And I would, and I would argue in, in defense of the church leader, like, it probably isn't. It probably isn't appropriate to give a recommend out for for one who's only attending a few times a year. But again, I recognize that for some, the church is hurtful. And, and I'm not saying you have to go all the time, but rather just realize, again, there's this give and take in this in this process. And that the church leader absolutely has a right and maybe even an obligation to withhold a temple recommend from somebody who is almost not going to church. My my bigger concern would be with that group of people who are going 
regularly, but not every week. And there's going to be a little more tension maybe in this question. And I know sometimes the judgment is made on the wrong side of, of where it should be made on both sides. And, and simply just want people to recognize there's a tension there. And, and this is a question I don't struggle with. Like for me, I like going to church every week. And I'm not saying church is always fun. I'm not saying that I always walk out of church happy. But rather, like, there's something about church that I just, I want and need to be there. These, these are my people, and this is good for me in the long run. And so I decide to dive into this every week. And so I'm not where others are at. I know people who go every other week. I know people who go once a month. I know people who go once every six months. And I just, I want to say, like, I, I get why you do that. And I would simply ask that you recognize that based on what that regularity is of attendance to understand that the leader on the other side of the table may very well hold back a temple recommend and in some cases is is even in my mind obligated to do so number seven do you support affiliate with or agree with any group or individual whose teachings or practices are contrary to or oppose those accepted by the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints now this question almost becomes ironic in my mind because the church is very much against there being homosexual leaders of a scout troop, right? And we had this tension like a year, year and a half ago where scouting has made this decision to allow homosexual leaders in the scouts. The church was adamantly against it, and yet the church as of today is still deeply connected to the scout program. So if if I were a bishop and on the other side of the table was the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and I said, you know, dear LDS Church, do you support, affiliate, or agree with any group or individual whose teachings or practices are contrary to or oppose those accepted by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? I'm curious if the church could then respond authentically and with integrity and pass the question. And so knowing that, it adds a whole lot more nuance into the question, right? And And when you recognize that even leaders within the church at times teach things that are contrary to the official position or doctrine of the church, then then even as the church deals intrinsically with itself, does it does it support, affiliate, or agree with a group or individual whose teachings or practices are contrary to or oppose those accepted by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? This becomes a much messier question. And I think everybody should know, too, this question was originally designed to kind of flesh out members of the church who were also members of fundamentalist groups who were continuing the practice of polygamy and that that's the real goal originally of this question was to draw that out as as mormonism as as anti-mormon on one extreme and tbm on the other have as we've come to realize there's this real gray area right of progressives and liberal mormons and critics who are in and critics who are out and groups that are critical of the church but are trying to put out maybe the real problems and open people's eyes. I, I think this question has become more of a way to like flesh out those who are f- trying to fight or destroy the church. And I would simply say as a progressive Mormon, I don't think progressive Mormonism is an enemy. And, and if you're really trying to destroy the church, if you're really trying to just burn this thing down and have it be ashes in its wake, then, then be honest in this interview because you don't deserve a temple recommend if that's your motive. And I and I totally validate the leader's ability to withhold a recommend from you if that's the stance you take. 
But for anybody who's trying to make Mormonism better, deep down really truly want to make Mormonism better, want something bigger and better to, to be in its place in 10 years or 20 years or 50 years, then I don't think that's the enemy of the church. Is there anything in your conduct? This is number six. Is there anything in your conduct relating to members of your family that is not in harmony with the teachings of the church? And, and again, I think this question, while vague, is asking something very specific. And it is, do you abuse your family in any way? And again, I don't think it's talking about the little thing like, I yelled at my kids yesterday and I should have done that. Rather, it's talking about, you know, sexual, physical abuse and, and emotional abuse and sexual and physical abuse probably in any case, in any of its forms. And, and I think we all, to some extent, emotionally abuse each other. We're all humans and we fail. And when I yell at my kids, I'm emotionally abusing them. But I would say, like, like you have to make a decision in your head. And if there's any, because we're talking about hurting another person, and because we're talking about, in many of these instances, children, if there's any doubt in your mind of whether this is serious or not, I'd suggest talking to your church leader about it. Like, like I don't want anybody hurt. And so I would simply challenge, like any member of the church in a temple interview, if there is physical or sexual abuse going on, like let's like put it on the table and let's deal with it. And, and there's some deep repentance that needs to go on. But more than that, whoever's being hurt needs some help. Like I want this question to be one that I don't really make a whole lot of nuance for because there just isn't any. If you're hurting somebody, like now's the time to talk about it and to put it out there. And only by opening your mouth and saying, look, I've messed up. This person's going to need some help and I've got some repentance to do. Are you going to be able to get through this question with authenticity and integrity? And so I want to be very blunt on that one. Number five, do you live the law of chastity? I'm, I'm struggling right now in the church to even understand the law of chastity because the law of chastity for our straight brothers and sisters is very different from the law of chastity for our gay brothers and sisters. And until the church can say, this is the law of chastity, and whether you're gay or straight, this is what we're holding to, the question really doesn't have a set definition. And so do you live the law of chastity? I certainly don't want to make room for adultery or premarital sex. And I certainly don't want to encourage people to get to as close to that line as they can. Rather, I simply want to say that, that yeah, there might be a little nuance here, but I just wouldn't overreach on it. And if in your mind and in your heart with you and God, you've broken the law of chastity, then again, here's a perfect chance to repent and to talk to somebody about it and to begin a healing process. These these last four are, are for me the biggest ones that people are curious about. Number four, do you sustain the president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints as the prophet, seer, and revelator, and as the only person on the earth who possesses and is authorized to exercise all priesthood keys? Do you sustain members of the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles as prophets, seers, and revelators? And do you sustain the other general authorities and local authorities of the Church? Now, this, this question is complicated for a whole bunch of reasons. One is that the question asked if the President of the Church is authorized to exercise all priesthood keys the actual answer to that is no. He doesn't, he's not authorized to exercise the keys of resurrection, at least not at present. He's not, exer- he's not authorized to exercise the keys of creation, at least not at present. 
And so even the president of the church is not authorized to exercise all priesthood keys. And, and even if the church is everything it claims to be, he, he, he's only authorized to exercise all the priesthood keys that are on the earth at this moment. So that's one little piece of nuance. Another piece of nuance is the word sustain. If I go on to Google and do a Google search of the word sustain, I know a lot of people have trouble with this question. This like, can I sustain the prophet knowing what I know? Can I sustain the brethren knowing what I know? And, and I would simply like challenge you, go on Google, type in the word sustain and look for the definitions of it. There's two primary definitions. The first one is to strengthen or support physically or mentally. The synonyms are to comfort, to help, to assist, to encourage, to succor, to support, to give strength to, to buoy up, to carry, to cheer up, to hearten. And, and so the question is, do you, when you raise your hand, are you willing to sustain the prophets in that way? But I also think the word sustain is the perfect word to use when talking about this, 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 this question. Because the, the word sustain essentially has almost kind of like the opposite meaning as well. The second set of, of defining terms for the word sustain is to undergo or suffer something unpleasant, especially an injury. The synonyms are to undergo, experience, suffer, endure. And, and so there's this idea that when we say, do you sustain the prophets, seers, and revelators of the church, you're saying, look, I'm going to do what I can to, to help them be productive and move the church forward. But I'm also promising to endure the hurt and injury that they cause me. It's almost a realization that these men are going to fail you. And they're going to cause this tension in Mormonism that makes this question almost a paradox by itself, right? Am I going to do what I can to buoy them up while also enduring injury from them? To me, I know I get it. Like some of these, these the harm that they cause is really bad. And, and I, I validate that. But I also want to say like this question is there's a tension here that's really positive. There's a tension here that's that feels intentional and I think drives us to deeper stages of faith development and, and to recognize that there's no better word in the entire dictionary than the word sustain in, in, to put in place in the place of this question. Like it's perfect. It like represents both sides of the coin and the real experience of Mormonism once your eyes are open. And yet you're raising your hand willing to do both. And, and I should add too, I've got a little more nuance. I wanted to make sure I said this right, and so I wrote this part out, and I, I hope you'll understand. I, I, for me, there's this is a really complicated way of framing what it means to be a prophet, seer, and revelator to me in the church. And so maybe each of you can gain something from this way in which I frame this. Do I believe that the president of the church, by the nature of his calling, has direct communication with God? Or at a minimum, he he has communicated with God in a way that is above and beyond my communication with God? No. No, in fact, I'm highly doubtful that any of our recent leaders have spoken to Jesus Christ face to face. I simply see evidence for me that points to the contrary. Instead, I frame this a different way. I personally have claimed back my own authority to decide truth within myself. In other words, the Holy Ghost within me, God inside of me, is the ultimate source of my truth. I no longer trust an extrinsic authority outside of myself 
to be my ultimate source of truth. I've let go of that. That paradigm is disappeared. But having claimed for myself my inner authority or God within me, I then permit and hand back a part of my trust to these men that they will serve as prophets to me. When I do this, I'm not stating that they are prophets to the world, even for those who don't recognize them as such. Right? Like, I don't, I don't hold that Thomas S. Monson is my Methodist neighbor's prophet. I don't hold that the Islamist man who lives on the other side of the world, that Thomas S. Monson is his prophet. Instead, I recognize that they are men, just like you and me, who have been appointed to a religious authority by other men within a man-made institution, and that I find interactions with the divine within this community. While Thomas Monson may not be a prophet to my Methodist neighbor, I have indeed handed Thomas Monson my trust that I will look to him as a source of truth among my sources of truth, that I will be willing to hear God through him in the same way that I see God in my kids or that I hear God in my hike in nature or that I see God in my wife, in the way that I see God in my friendships and how I open myself up to the divine interaction through all of these experiences. I allow LDS leadership to have a seat at the table of the sources that I am open to in providing me spiritual experiences and and insight. So when I listen to General Conference, I'm listening for God to talk to me through them. But it may be very different than the way that other members of the church define that and how they define these men. And I think that's a, a crucial point to make. Like the question again is vague. Do you sustain these men as prophets, seers, and revelators? And I can honestly, authentically, and with integrity say yes to the question. But again, it may not be framed the way that a TBM or Orthodox Mormon would understand it. They may even see that view as apostate. But I'm simply recognizing that I think all of us as progressive Mormons are beginning to be in this space or are already in it. So while I respect Buddhism and have participated in some small amount in it. And while I respect Islam, though I've not read the Quran, while I respect other Christian faiths in my neighborhood and community, I'm not going there looking for truth, though I have no doubt in my mind truth is present there. Instead, I have chosen because my table is only so big and I only have enough space at my table in terms of time and resources to capture truth from only certain sources while completely respecting that truth is all over the place. I have permitted the LDS church and its leaders to have a space at that table, and I sustain them as prophets, seers, and revelators to me. And I hope that folks can understand that as I frame it that way. And I think when you go into a temple interview understanding it that way, there's so much more space in this question. Number three, do you have a testimony of the restoration of the gospel in these, the latter days? For me, I I look at the restoration and it changed my life. Like when I was 17 and, and before I joined the church and I'm doing drugs and selling drugs and shoplifting, like I'm heading down the wrong path. And then Mormonism comes along and it restores something to me. Like the restoration restored me. And there are things within the restoration that I feel have been restored back to me and to my community. And I think there is a certain awareness of God, 
a certain awareness of of faith development even even the church failing in some regards is a restoration a restoring of attention that is needed in our lives to be able to develop and to move into deeper stages of faith development and so when i'm asked do i have a testimony of the restoration of the gospel in these latter days absolutely like my very being has had the gospel restored to it and my community certainly has as well and so i have no problem walking into this interview and and, and answering this question yes again there may be doubts and hopes and and challenges and a lack of faith in various tangents of that question in the way that the orthodox member understands it but to me the church didn't ask this question so specifically to get at that rather the question again is vague and the questions between me and my father in heaven and this person on the other side of the table who has an obligation to have the spirit of discernment to know if me and god are being authentic with integrity to each other and that god is okay with my understanding and my beliefs Again, Hubie Brown once said, I don't really care. We don't, he's actually, he's actually, he says we. He says, we don't care if your thoughts are heterodox or orthodox so much as you have thoughts. And, and I've thought deeply on these questions and I have thoughts. Number two, do you have a testimony of the atonement of Christ and his role as savior and redeemer? And I want to combine this one with the last one, which is, do you have faith in and a testimony of God, the eternal father, his son, Jesus Christ, in the Holy Ghost. In other words, do I have a testimony of the Godhead and the Savior's role as my Savior and Redeemer? Do I believe in God? Yes. I believe there is something bigger than us out there, and I choose to define that as God. Do I believe in Jesus Christ? Yes. Do I believe in the historical Jesus who assuredly lived and died and rose on the third day? I don't know that, though I hope in it. And if the historical Christ did not rise on the third day, That matters so very little to me now, as I've been affected by the mercy and grace of the Christ of faith regardless. Do I believe in the Holy Ghost? Yes. I believe there is something within ourselves, God within us, right? Receive the Holy Ghost. In other words, receive part of God. I believe that there is something within ourselves that assists us in understanding good and bad and helps us to recognize spiritual moments in our life. I don't believe Mormons have greater access to the Holy Ghost, but I'm not asked to believe that and to account for it in this question. Brothers and sisters, there's how I handle a temple interview. And I honestly, I bear testimony, like I go in with full authenticity, full integrity, and I answer these questions. And to date, I've been lucky. I've been blessed with good leaders, blessed with a wonderful bishop who who is allowed me to have some nuance, who's allowed me to have a seat at the table in my ward and to raise my hand and say, I think differently than you. I've been blessed to have a stake president who who I, I feel is more orthodox and, and to some extent probably is very uncomfortable with me, but he loves me enough to say, you can still have a seat at this table and we welcome you and encourage you to participate fully. I understand not everybody has that. I understand that some of you have challenges where you say so very little and your leaders withhold full participation of the gospel from you. It breaks my heart. It truly does. It it tears me up inside. I am saddened by the fact that the leadership of this church doesn't actively make more space for the real reality that's out there 
when one dives into this messiness, to the listeners of this podcast, I want to say thank you for listening. I know this journey's been tough, and I hope that by my voice and the voices of others out there that you realize you're not alone and that you realize that there are there is beautiful things that lie ahead of this. My heart goes out to those who have just entered that dark night of the soul, to those folks who just can't figure out how this all fits back together again. May I simply say it, maybe it doesn't. Like, stop trying to take the existing pieces and put them back together. Instead, just take it all apart. Take it all apart and keep the things that are of worth to you and discard the things that are not and begin to assimilate new pieces in. May the Lord warm your shoulders. God bless each of you as you strive to participate in this church as much as you can and as much as it will allow you. God bless you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.